0: The following episode of the DJ Bob Show was recorded before the SAG-AFTRA strike began. We and our guests fully support the strike and the efforts SAG-AFTRA actors fighting for fair wages and protections. Hey, I'm Bob Runkle. And for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, Pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts, stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's can driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. Okay, so let me tell you a quick story. Growing up, I was a huge fan of Weird Al Yankovic. And at the time of the release of his album, Straight Outta Linwood, I had the opportunity to talk to him. Right there. I was moments away from talking to him. And then, well, I hung up. And for years, I regretted that. Until today, I got to chat with Weird Al's longtime drummer, John Bermuda Schwartz about everything literally everything so let's get into it oh my god i'm geeking out for those that don't know you could you kind of introduce yourself and give a little bit of an elevator pitch of who you are and what you've done in your career
1: well i am uh John Bermuda Schwartz, best known for being Weird Al Yankovic's drummer for many, many, many years. I met him in late 1980 and have been his uh, drummer ever since on the albums and on the road and in the videos and all of that stuff. Uh, I play in uh, several other bands uh, locally here in Los Angeles. And uh, I, in the last uh, couple of years, have put out two books of my photographs of Al and the band, and uh, uh, both have sold well. The first one was a black and white book. Uh, that came out in late 2020 and uh, has sold out, actually. Some of the stores still have some, some copies, but basically the distributors, all out of them. There are no more once those are gone, once those are gone. And uh, then I put out another book of color photos in late 2022, and that has sold very well as well. And uh, great reviews from the fans and and uh, you know some of the people that watch how books are doing. So that's, that's kind of it, books and music, and uh, and it's a it's a good life. And it's been busy recently uh, on the road as well. We're still going after, well, in my case, almost 43 years with Al. Uh, still going strong. So
0: you have kind of been dubbed as the Weird Al historian within just sectors of the fan base, and you've even... You've even said that yourself. Or you've, you've documented everything.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, Al, Al has called me the official archivist, which I guess is is true. I go out and I not only do I uh, collect everything that comes across my hands, uh, posters from the shows and things like that, and reviews and print where I can find them, but I go out and find uh, audio and video stuff from over the years, uh, things that maybe I missed 10, 15, 20 30, 40 years ago, uh, you know, I, I track those down and, and there are some collectors out there who are even better at tracking things down and they've been very kind to send me some of those things, uh, as well, you know, for the archive. And, uh, so yeah, I've got i I've got like almost 1700, uh, pieces of audio and, and video and promo things and retail stuff from around the world on Al. And, uh, which is pretty good for a guy that's only had 14 studio albums, uh, to have that much stuff out. But again, this is over a 40 year career for him, 40 plus years. And there's a lot of stuff out there. There's certainly a lot of stuff I don't have, but I have a lot of stuff. And, uh, I've, I've not only have it stashed away physically, but it's documented, uh, in databases. Uh, I've kept lists of, uh, all the, uh, information about the videos we've shot, all the recording sessions we've done, uh, chart information about the albums, um, you know, I just, I keep track of all that stuff and, and that actually all started well before Al, it wasn't just, you know, all oh, here I'm, I'm with a famous guy. I better keep tabs on what's going on. Uh, I just, I always did that. I did that as a kid, you know, and I just basically, I think because I'm sentimental and I like to hang on to things and, and keep track of things that I've been involved with. And, uh, you know, so I was, I was already that way when I met Al, I've done that for all of my other bands that I've been in. Uh, make recordings of things. I was doing that as a kid. Uh, When I'd rehearse with some of my friends, I'd run a tape recorder and I've still got those tapes from 1970 and 71 when I was in my first band. And uh, I just, you know, I I keep track of that. And then Al has asked me certain things as well. You know, when he needed information for something official and he wanted a definitive answer, you know, exactly when was this album released? Exactly. When did we shoot this video? You know, where, who was the director? Where did we shoot it? uh, Things like that. I've got all of that information and I've got it uh, with me at all times uh, on the road and on my phone and uh, sitting here in front of the computer. It's all in databases.
0: So I would love to call you a historian, but I also love to call you a very creative person, whether, whether it be musically or photography or whatever. So what is the hardest part for you about being a creative person?
1: Oh boy, it's uh, that's that's hard to define. You know, I I don't know. I I guess I'm creative as as a musician. I'm creative. I don't know if I consider myself an artist. I mean, I I, uh, you know, I create drum parts, of course. Uh, But with a lot of Al songs, I duplicate drum parts. I mean, whenever we do a parody, there's already an existing uh, music and arrangement and and the parts and the sounds and and you know, so I go in and duplicate that, which is also an art uh, to be able to do, but. I do get to create. I have a little creative freedom, a lot of creative freedom on Al's originals. And and that's nice. And that just comes from somewhere inside. I guess I have a good ear. And when I hear something, I sort of know what goes with it, you know, as far as the drumming. Uh, and, and the photography end of things, you know, honestly, I mean, I got much better at photography than than I was way back in the day. Uh, I started shooting stuff when I was in my teens. And uh, so I already had a camera in my hand when I, when I met Al and started hanging out with him. And I just really pointed the camera and just clicked and just, you know, and and back in the old days really didn't give a lot of thought to, you know, good composition of a photo and lighting or any of that stuff. I just, just so many snapshots. And for all of the really good photos that are in these books and and they are, I think the best of the best, there's 10 times as many, uh, that, that aren't very good at all that, you know, aren't really worth seeing. So I, I think this is the extent of the photo books uh, I put out, uh, 500 plus of the best photos, uh, that I've got of Al and the guys. And, uh, and I think those are represented well, but I didn't learn to really create with a camera until much later. And I was, I was more judicious about the kind of photos I took and framing them. And, uh, and also a uh, big difference back in the old days when my creative freedom grew because I was able to start shooting digital, which I started doing in the late nineties. And now shooting digital those photos are free uh back in the day i had to pay for film i had to pay for developing i had to pay for prints and uh it was an expensive proposition with the amount of photos that i used to shoot yeah but still i just shot a ton of stuff you know had i been more judicious back in the day not only would i have saved some money but i think i would have had more great photos and uh more possibilities for some great books or maybe these books could have been thicker you know they could have had more photos more cool photos in them but as far as creative things, um, you know, that's nice to think that I'm creative. I just, I'm not really sure. You know, I'm certainly not as creative as Weird Al. You know, he's just, he's he's a genius in that respect.
0: So on that note, when you're given a demo of a song that he's crafted, because he create he kind of crafts the demos before you're even involved, essentially. So how often are you shocked with what he's done like are you like when you are gonna demo what's your typical mindset what are you thinking
1: well he he usually i mean he does in fact do demos of the original songs uh on his own and they're not terribly complete uh you know because he knows we'll know what to do with them but we need obviously to know arrangements we need to know you know, melodic structure, uh, you know, the feel of the song. So he'll put into it, you know, it helps to have the lyrics. Uh, I mean, it doesn't, it's not absolutely essential, but in, in my case, I don't want to do something that will step on the lyrics. I don't want to do something so rhythmically out of the rhythm that he's singing. Uh, so, I mean, it is important to hear the lyrics, certainly for me. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we get the demo, we get his demo, with the understanding that we need to massage it a little further, with the understanding that unless he says something about a specific line or a melody or or a, or a part, that we have the freedom uh, to to create on our own, to take it a little bit further. But then we have to run that by him as well. We don't go straight into the studio with that. We then, as a band with Al, we record a demo with Al. So, th- so now after we've had a chance to sort of listen to what he's done and think about a way to take it maybe a little further. We then record a demo so that Al can hear it back, you know, in a way that he didn't think about it in the first place and then decide, you know, well, is that what you want? Or then he has a chance to, to hear what we have in mind and say, you know, yes, that's good. Keep that part, do this a little bit different, you know, and, and we massage it a little further for then from then. And uh, we go into the studio and we'll run it down once or twice with these new changes in them. And it's usually kind of minor stuff. I mean, we've learned over the years what he likes and what he wants. Uh, you know, so we've gotten better at what we do, of course. And, and so we go into the studio and we get the songs down very, very quickly. And then to record them, you know, we've already played it as a band. You know, we will have run it down a couple of more times in the studio, and then we'll record it in one or two takes, which is pretty good. Uh, you know, even you know, even for a bunch of pros like us, you know, sometimes songs take four, five, six, ten takes. I mean, sometimes. The artist or producer, and in this case, Alice, both the artist and the producer, are so persnickety that that they just, they want everything to be perfect. And even with all the technology to be able to fix a little part here and there, we will very often, you know, a lot of bands will very often go in and record a whole new take. And they'll, they'll you know, run through a song a bunch of times till they're just tired of it. And we've gotten really good about getting things down pretty quick. And that's not to say there aren't little tiny fixes, but we know how to go in and do those without beating our brains out or possibly risking some, you know, a really good feel of a song, you know, while we're still fresh with it, you know, to go in and keep re-recording it just to fix a small part. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that doesn't help the song, you know, and then you have to go back to the original thing, you know, you keep everything of course, but then you have to go back to the original and go fix those little parts, which is what should have been done in the first place. So, you know, we're, we're very uh, expedient in the studio, but again, you know, Al goes through the demo process. The band goes through the demo process. And only then are we ready to go in and actually do it in the studio. Do it for real.
0: Yeah. As you're telling me all of this, there's one song in particular that I'm thinking of. And it's like Albuquerque. Mm. That must have been like running a marathon. That one. Cause that goes everywhere. Yeah.
1: Well, it does. I mean, it's, it, well, it's a marathon just because it's so long. I mean, there are really only a couple of parts to the song. You know, there's there's the band just vamps, just kind of plays along, uh, you know, while Al sort of sings, talks over, it. and then the chorus becomes musical and, he, and you know, he sings it. And But those are the only two parts. But the song is like, is it 12 or 13 minutes long? It's a long song. And and it's, uh, well, for one thing, when we cut it in the studio, I think we did it in three parts. There's a couple of parts in the song that have a natural little stop in it for a couple of beats or a, or a measure or two. And I, I recall that we would stop at that point because it's a pretty fast song as well. Yeah. We would stop. And then we would, we would uh, punch in, we would basically pick it up where, uh, where we left off, you know, in time. And, and so, you know, and so we were fresh, you know, so it sounded energetic still. Well, and that, and that worked out really well. I mean, I believe we got that song. We did it in, in three sections. But every section was like one take. We got each section down and and basically it was done after that. But certainly it took longer than 13 minutes to record it. Now live, we don't have that luxury. We can't just stop and you know rest for five minutes. Uh, we have to play it. We have to play it as is. And in fact, uh, Al very often will stop the song at the end, stop the song near the end, and, and then say, oh, I, I lost my place. And then we have to start over at the beginning. And and then we go for a couple more minutes and then he remembers where we were at. And then we finish up the song at the end. I mean, that's, that's not really a secret. The audience always knows that's coming. Uh, There was one time we got almost to the end and he did that. And we started at the beginning and we went through the entire song again. It was like a 25 minute song by the time we finished it. And, and that's at the end of the show. That's after we've already played for an hour and a half. So we're, you know, me, especially I'm tired I can't play that long that fast, you know, so that that's a tough one that that is that's one of the hard ones. Now, we have other long songs, but they're not as fast and and relentless. Just, you know, they just go without stopping like Albuquerque is. But you know what? That's that's a major fan favorite. And we kind of can't not do it. I mean, we, we've we been doing that at most shows for uh, since it's come out, since it came out in Ninety-nine, maybe. Yeah. I think we did Albuquerque. Yeah, so we've been doing it for over twenty years at almost every show.
0: That's amazing, and that album was very instrumental to me. It was my first exposure to Al and you guys. That because it was just, uh, I feel like, but if you asked. Someone around my age. I'm 28. What their first exposure to Al was? That album.
1: You were very young. You were like four or five or something.
0: Yep, exactly. Because wow, <laughs> because uh, Radio Disney played their own version of the saga begins, where he had Al had to change one lyric. All right so as, as the historian, do you remember any talk about that? like
1: what? Well I, I, yeah, I, I do remember, and the lyric was uh, something I, I, I don't remember the exact words leading up to it, but but the line was uh, you know he was hitting on the queen, like he was you know trying to trying to to uh, uh, take her out, trying to ask her out, you know trying to pick her up and but they didn't like the line hitting. Because it sounded like he was, and I don't know why. Because the lyrics didn't point to that. It's just Al chose that word. You know, he's trying to, trying to make time with her, right? And but they didn't like the word "hitting" because it sounded violent. In the meantime, they're playing Britney Spears "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" and didn't think anything of that. But anyway, Al changed the lyric to uh, I think it was to talking to the Queen. Yeah, and and that's what they put. They had a CD. They had like a, a compilation CD. And that's what they put on their CD. So there is, in fact, uh, that's a legitimate released version with that one-word difference. I have that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was it. That was the word was hitting. They didn't like that, but they they ignored it in at least one other case. They just took that opportunity to make Al change it. He went back in and did it. And, uh, you know.
0: It was funny. I was talking to a couple years ago. I was talking to... The vice president of programming at Radio Disney about that, and she be like, "I don't even remember having to do that."
1: <laughs> wow.
0: Yeah, I mean that that song is so special. The song because not only is it Star Wars, it's American Pie, two pop culture sort of touchstones. Yeah. In one. When you, hear, when you hear, oh, we're going to do an American Pie parody, like, is there a lot of weight there for you? Like, all of you? Or is it just,
1: we're just going to do it? As far as the history of the song and the importance of the original, do you mean that like that?
0: Yeah, like, none, no, yes, knowing the history and knowing that you're going to, leave your mark on it with this parody here
1: well uh uh, of course i mean you know some songs are are classic which al is not really known for doing you know digging in that case digging back like almost 30 years you know 25 to 30 years to pick a target to do a current parody i mean most of his targets for the parodies are, are current you know within a year or two you know sometimes less than that so to go back and and grab an older song you know what made that work was at least the content of the song the context was a, a current pop culture thing it's not like he went back and and picked an old song and sang an old sort of a theme to it and made up old words that that somebody who's 10 or 12 years old wouldn't really understand uh you know it, it's uh, and that's not the only time he's gone back a bit and and picked an older song for parody, and, and again again with the Star Wars thing, uh, he picked uh, "Lola" by the Kinks, which came out in seventy one, and and he did Yoda, I think, in nineteen eighty. So to have gone back nine years, you know, at that time, that was a long time too. Again, that's that and American Pie, both the Star Wars songs uh, are are the two anomalies as far as him. With his parody targets going back in time a little bit, but American Pie, of course, and I, I was, you know, certainly old enough to to know that as a kid uh, was is a classic song. I mean, it's that's such a classic song, and everybody loved that song. What's interesting, and it's a long song, and what Al did, I think there's like five verses in in Don McLean's version, and I think we did two or three verses. We cut out quite a bit, and just to make it, I, you know, I don't know if it's that he. Didn't couldn't figure out how to write that much stuff, that many lyrics, or if it was just sufficiently long. At however long, you know, it, he shortened you know the McLean version, and it still came in at at a good time. And, and you know, not many people would have noticed that it's technically shorter than American Pie, but yeah, there's a couple of verses that are missing. And uh, but Al managed to tell the whole story, and and you know he made a he, he makes a lot of creative decisions. I mean, not all of the parodies are done absolutely verbatim. I mean, there's been times, you know, and and we're pretty strict about copying the original music. Uh, I mean, obviously the lyrics are different, but we copy the original music, but that's not always a hundred percent either. I mean, Al has occasionally thrown in an accordion solo or, you know, or, or, certain things that, uh, you know, were not on the original song and then other things are done a hundred percent verbatim. And, you know, without any accordion, you know, if there wasn't any on the original song and there aren't many songs like that. And, uh, you know, without like wacky sound effects and things like that. I mean, sometimes Al leaves it alone and other times he puts his touch on it. Uh, so it just, it it depends. Like there was an accordion solo in, in, uh, oh, what was the song by, uh, crash test dummies.
0: Mm-mm-mm-mm.
1: Oh yeah. And we, yep. and we did uh, headline news and, and there was, there was some like accordion little, little stuff on the outro, which was not on the crash test dummies record, of course. So, you know, Al Al gets a little artistic freedom, you know, and just so if he wants to change the arrangement, for example, if he wants to shorten a song, uh, he does it. Uh, Jurassic Park was another song where he made, where we took out, there's there's a, uh, I guess it's what you'd call the bridge. And it's a nice, uh, the original uh, Richard Harris version of MacArthur Park. There was a very sweet section in the middle where he's, you know, sort of, singing through, you know, very nice story before, you know, before it comes back in and, you know, with the orchestra and all that stuff. And we didn't do that part, our part, you know, Al made a, an edit. And again, I don't know if, if he thought that maybe it was a little, I hate to say the original was boring, but if, if he thought that for his fans, that if that might be boring or something to have that little sweet, slow part. uh, So, so we cut it out. And what's interesting is it's funny when I hear that now and then when I hear the original, uh, I hear that part come in, and it's like, I, God, I've forgotten that it was even there because we played Jurassic Park our way for uh, it's almost thirty years. Thirty it's years, been out here. Mm-hmm. And We're just so used to that. I mean, and even, and it wasn't even just that. I mean, sometimes he'll make an artistic decision just to sh- you shave off fifteen seconds here or there or whatever. Uh, smells like Nirvana is not the exact arrangement that smells like Teen Spirit was. Like, I think the intro is longer. On smells like teen spirit but Al cut that it's like you know what let's let's get into it you know give him the hook we give him the flavor of it let's get into it start singing it we don't need that much instrumental and and so he'll do that. he'll take some creative liberties there um, So not everything is is verbatim but you know it just again it's up to Al you know and then it becomes Al's version of, of the song.
0: So we we've spoken previously we hung out but the first time we spoke, it was before you were touring again. Uh, what was it like touring in a post COVID world?
1: Well, we were still kind of in the COVID thing when we went out, we had, uh, well, COVID hit real strong in March of 2020 is when it really became very obvious and official to the world, I think. And, uh, Fortunately for us, that was a year off. We weren't, nothing really changed for us that year, you know, musically. Uh, we were, as, as, and as COVID started to, well, it sort of came and went and it went up and down and up and down. And there was talk about going out in 2021, hitting the road again, that would have been our normal time to go out again. And things were still a little iffy. Some bands were going out, you know, it just, it depended, you know, uh, fans were certainly ready you know, after a year plus to go out and start doing stuff again and seeing, you know, seeing bands. And we were almost going to do it. And the booking agency said, you know what, it's just, it's not quite time yet. You know, let's, let's wait till next year, you know, 2022. It'll wait till next year and, and should be okay. Then there shouldn't be any issues. You know, we don't want to book a tour and have things get canceled, you know, we just let's wait another year. So, and we had uh, we had a pretty good plan for 2021. We were going to do a lot. Uh, instead, we did it in 2022. And part of that plan, uh, the original tour was we were going to do the U.S. There was talk about going uh, to Japan for the first time. Uh, we were going to uh, do Europe and Australia again. And anyway, but, but it got shortened up a little bit. And in 2022, which is also the year, and we'll talk about the weird movie shortly, I'm sure, uh, but that was uh, Al. Al uh, was involved with that. And that shot in the beginning of 2022. And so the tour was moved so Al could do the, the work on there. He was one of the producers. Uh, he was he co-wrote the film as well. So he was involved in wrapping that up. So we didn't go on the road until the end of April. But we had a 27 week tour booked and which is six months and a week and without any breaks. With no breaks. And this is, you know, five shows a week mostly. That's a pretty heavy schedule. And that was just in the US and Canada. That's a very heavy schedule for anybody, for a young band, for an old band, whatever. So we had uh, a busy time and we were, things still weren't perfectly good with COVID, but we knew we could go out and play. But there were certain protocols that had to be in place, not just for us as a band that was traveling around and going in and out of hotels and our crew is going in and out of five theaters a week. And then, you know, working with local crew people that are in each theater, uh, but the fans as well, you know, would they come out and sit next to each other, you know, and, you know, 1500, 2000 of them, you know, five nights a week, would we be able to make that work? So the pro, some of the protocols were that initially in the tour or very early on, uh, the fans would, I think they, back in the day, you could show proof of a COVID test, uh, or, or, oh, was, no, you, you showed proof of vaccination because everyone got a little card when you got vaccinated, uh, which which doesn't stop you from getting COVID. Uh, it just reduces the effects if you do, which is a good idea because I know a lot of people got very sick before the vaccines happened. Uh, so the, so for the people to come in, they had to show proof of vaccination. And if they didn't have it, uh, they could get a COVID test right then and there. And it's like if they were negative, they could go in and sit in there and that was Okay. So that was the thing we we tested for COVID every night of the tour and not just on show nights, but on nights off, uh, we would, we would test. I mean, we had 27 weeks worth of tests every single night. Uh, and, uh, there were a few instances of COVID, uh, among us, actually the entire band and emo eventually, uh, got COVID and nobody got really sick, which is good. Uh, Steve Jay actually caught it after the tour and he, he was down for a couple of weeks. He wasn't feeling that good, but uh, Al was actually the very first. We had to cancel four dates. I remember like, hearing about that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which we made up this year uh, and, uh, and then took off to uh, Europe for four weeks and Australia for almost two weeks. And then ended up, we ended with five days in Hawaii. We did a, a show in Honolulu. First time playing Hawaii as a band. We did Honolulu. Then we did a show on Maui, Uh, in Kahului, which is uh, the main city there. Well, Jim didn't, Jim didn't have that far of a commute. Oh, no. Well, he was, he he was very, well, yeah, neither did Al. Uh, Al has a house in Hana. He he has a place on Maui. So after that last date in Maui, he basically just went and spent a week uh, at his other home. You know I mean? His main house is in Los Angeles, but he's got a place in Hana uh, overlooking the ocean. Yeah. So funny. He went straight there and he was, he was home. He was, you know, he just, he hung out for a week or 10 days.
0: It's so funny. One of my early mentors when I started doing this podcast was your front of house
1: engineer this tour Floyd. Oh, oh yeah. Actually he was the monitor engineer, but he normally does front of house. That's true. He did monitors for us. Uh, he's a good guy. He was a great guy. He stayed. His wife came out and met him and, and he stayed, I think, for three or four days. Yeah. He's been absolutely loyal to our show. So when I. Oh, cool.
0: So he basically texted me and was like, hey, I'm doing this. If you want to keep up with me, just text me and we'll check something up.
1: He's he's a good guy. We liked him. and He he did a really good job. And he uh, and he was kind of, and you know, we did actually have a new front of house engineer as well. I mean, both of them joined us uh, in, uh, we made up the, the four dates that Al missed last year. We made those up in the beginning of February, a few dates in Michigan. There was one in Illinois, one in Indiana. And uh, those were, they were new to the, uh, to this tour. I mean, they, they had not worked with us before. There were no rehearsals. Uh, I mean, we rehearsed the day before, you know, the show, well, the, the day of the show, we ran through the show so they would know what the heck they were getting into. But there were no there were no rehearsals or anything like that. We just all showed up. We met them that day, and uh, and they they you know about a weekend they were like up to speed. I mean they they were and they were both really good. Actually, our front of house guy, a guy named John Ship, with two P's, uh, John was is uh, has been working with Aerosmith for a number of years. Now we were I think lucky to get him. I think Aerosmith is going out on the road uh, uh, soon, like this year. And, and I'm sure John will go out. And, yeah. Into next year. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll go out and work with them. So, uh, you know, we were lucky to get him and, and he did a great job. Nice guy. Void was a nice guy. It's one good thing about our crew. And, you know, we, we don't make a lot of changes in the crew, but it's really rare that we get anybody that's a jerk. You know, we get people that are really nice and that's important. I mean, we, you know, it's important they be able to do their job, but it's really important that they be Easy, easy to get along with because the crew in particular spends a lot of time together. They spend a lot of time five days a week working with each other. And they actually spend a lot of time on days off. They hang out with each other. I mean, it's, it's really a family as is the band, you know, of course, but, but the crew, you know, and because they work long and hard, harder hours than we do, they have to be able to get along. Got to have a good sense of humor. You know, you can't, you can't be an alcoholic. I mean, you can't have any issues you know, you can't do drugs. I mean, you can't really have an issue that would cause problems in that team because it is a team. It's and it's really important. So John and and uh, Void filled in great. They were they were terrific. So now
0: we have even more connections than we did the last time we spoke. It's Great.
1: Yeah, because I, I didn't know him then. So you know, it's a, it's a small world and getting smaller.
0: Yeah, and I've I've known him since I was 13 years old. He was the one of the first people who really believed in what we did when we were only a couple months into this thing.
1: Oh, wow. Have you interviewed him for yeah, the
0: show? oh But okay. it's, it's been... It hasn't been since back then, so it's... It would be kind of like a reunion for all of us, so it would be really nice.
1: I mean, he only spent two months with us, but I mean, it might be... It was probably a very interesting two months for him. Yeah. It might be worth talking to him again.
0: So, um, on that note, you and I have kept in touch over the years since we've had our first conversation. Do you have any questions for me about what I do and my work? I kind of like to turn the tables to see what you want to know about me and what we do here.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, well what do I mean? Obviously, you, you do the, the podcast, but. I mean, do you, do you have a regular job thing that you do? I mean, what do you do? What's, what tell this, me about
0: yourself? This this, is, this has been my job since I was 15 years old. Wow. And it all started because there was, you know, having a disability, there isn't, I mean, pop culture was sort of my way into the world. And I kind of, um, I started doing radio shows on internet type stations and then I got fired and I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own show. And I came up with that. I, I came up with that idea and we launched three weeks later and it was live for five days a week, four hours a day. And I would never do that now with all the physical stuff that that's that that's, that's yeah. demanding. But like the other thing I want to mention is that like I never used to talk about my disability on this podcast. I never wanted it to. I never wanted it to be like, oh, look at him, he's doing this. But even though he had, like like the poor me approach. Yeah. But. But once I started talking about it, it created a conversation that myself and the guest wouldn't otherwise have. Because they're not, they're not thinking like that. They're not thinking about disability. And when they hear it, they're like, Oh, yeah. And then it opens up their mind a little bit. So it's a real give and
1: take. Well, I think it's it's you know I mean the the people who are listening you know will learn about me. I, there's no reason they shouldn't learn about you.
0: Yeah, I mean that's why I really, I really feel like though, like when you're being interviewed, you should have the floor to ask questions too. Like we're having a talk. That's it.
1: Well, now you you said you had. Uh, how did you? Uh, well, how did you hook up with uh, Void, for example? Uh, did you live near him, or or how did you run into him?
0: He was doing, he was doing sound for one of the first bands that I interviewed. They were a punk rock band called Push Play, out in Long Island, and they were doing a show at my middle school, and I was interested in like the sound aspect of it all. And I met him, and I met the band, and he let me hung hang out with him after the show, and he all worked and that. And then I followed him a couple months later to other shows to meet him again, and we've kept in touch ever since.
1: Oh, cool! Now, and where do you live now? Are you still out there?
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I still am. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm still out there, and. Uh, I've been doing this podcast for over 13 years, and it's pretty crazy because people people say to me like, "You're the pioneer of podcast," but, and I'm like, "Yeah, I don't think that because
1: well, no, 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 you are because that that was pretty that was extremely new. I mean, I I've been online almost 30 years. I mean, I literally got online for the first time in 1993, and I only thought podcasts were a thing like in the last maybe 10 years. So you were definitely you were you were in there pretty early. You were right on the ground floor.
0: And what's interesting is that I built this from the ground up. When I start when I started this, people would ask me, who set this up for you? Who did this for <laughs> you? Who what organization? And it's like I did. <laughs> like why is it such a big deal? Because I, I'm in a wheelchair, like do you think that I need somebody to help? Like, no. (laughs) Like, I have, I taught myself how to use the computer. I only type with one finger. I really adapted to my needs and still creating a quality product.
1: Yeah, well, that's very cool. I mean, it's actually, oh, the way the internet is set up, I mean, you you really, it, it does allow you to do that yourself. You don't have to have someone. Uh, You don't really need someone else to do that. You know, now, now that's just getting, getting your material on, uh, you know, online. That part's easy. Now promoting it is another, you know, then you got it. Then you have to be creative. Uh, That's, that's not always so easy to do. And especially with the amount of content that's out there. I mean, it's, there's just, there's so much out there, you know, audio and video and images. And, and there's just, there's so many outlets for that stuff and so many people doing it and so much, social media that's just really geared towards sitting and watching and listening to stuff like TikTok, you know, for example. I mean, that's not just Facebook again. That's that's a whole other, that's, you know, watching videos, you know, and and there was something else like that too a few years ago that had come out where it was really video oriented. And uh, you know, and to promoting that stuff is a real art. That's the trick is is promoting it and getting noticed.
0: So the problem that I struggle with as a creative is finding ways to not be pigeonholed in a certain box because a lot of my stuff is cho- um, children's television oriented and sort of that world. And when I do so- when I do something like this or anything else I'm into, they're like, what that's not normal, like I can <laughs> like, I can like other things, you know. Oh, but, sure.
1: yeah.
0: Um, but I, my main goal with this podcast is to talk to people that I care of, that I care about and care about their work, but also like debunk the stigma that. People with disabilities, like, only play it safe, and they can't create a quality product. Because when people think of disability sometimes, they kind of see it as less than, or something like that. So I try to just, like, power through any perceptions that people have.
1: Well, you're, you're asking the same questions, you know, and, and having the same kind of conversations that anybody has. I mean, there's no there's no difference, you know, for me. I mean, we're just having a chat. That's what an interview is. You know, there's not any aspect to it about, about disability or not. It's not about that at all.
0: Now, that being said, do you have any questions in regard to my disability and my workflow? Or is there anything you'd like to know? Just to well, educate you? What- Educate yourself a little bit, anything you want to know? Well,
1: what, what is, what is your disability? What, what do you have? Exactly. I have cerebral palsy. Oh, okay.
0: And my, my form of cerebral palsy is quadriplegic. So it hmm. affects all four limbs. And like, I, I found a way to make a setup. That works for me physically, but it doesn't sacrifice quality at all. That's the thing. Is like I'm not, I'm not gonna cr- have a setup that is just easy. Looking, it has to pack the same punch as like a, a mixing board or a uh, a preamp. I, I really try to not sacrifice quality with the work that I do. And, uh, with the way technology is now, you're not losing any quality. Yeah. You're not because what I have here is just a USB mic that has monitoring built into it. And you don't even need a mixing board to run it. I have one, but if I don't need it, then... What's the point?
1: Right. That's it sounds and and feels fine to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's basically the old, the younger brother of one of the, one of the industry standard, mics that sure make, and it's absolutely wonderful. Okay. It breaks the bank a little bit, but (laughs) for quality,
1: I don't care. (laughs) It took me a few years. I finally learned to start using like an external mic. Uh, and so I got a, I didn't spend a lot of money on it. I think it was probably a $35 mic or something. but a you, a USB mic? Yeah, we talked about that last time. Okay, I'm, I wonder if I, I wonder if I got it for you. Uh, I think when I first started using Zoom and realized that audio was important, because a lot of interviews I've done have been over the phone, uh, you know, and, and podcast. Well, again, you know, there was no Zoom prior to Really, yeah, the, the I, I was era.
0: using I was using um
1: Skype before that. Oh, right, that oh, that's right. Yeah, that's but I didn't use Skype a whole lot either. I don't think I'd done. Cause we did it over Zoom. I remember that. Yeah, right. So, but that was early on for me. I remember I even had like a green screen behind me, and I used to. And now I've learned to just you know you can blur out the background, and and uh, you know so just my face looks sharp, and uh, you know the rest of it is kind of blurry, which is a lot easier than having some clever background that can be distracting and all that like and i and i have like 30 or 35 different background stills made up that, that i could use for different times i mean you know drum stuff or you know my wall of cds or a, a nice uh, mountain range or me in the living room with you know, all my gold records Or yeah that's the one last time yeah uh, okay i had all sorts of fun wacky stuff and then i just sort of got over that. <laughs> it just started, you know what, I'll just have the rest of it blurry behind me and uh, so that the focus is on me and it's not about the background. And, you know, I don't have to worry about having to have a green screen everywhere I go. If I want to do a Zoom thing from a hotel on the road, I can do it without having to go, oh no, I don't have my my special background. You know, it's like a oh, big deal. Oh, no big thing. But I think I, I first learned about Zoom, you know, during COVID. I mean, really that was... That was how people sort of visited it also.
0: Zoom was literally a big selling point as an audio nerd because it gives you separate tracks for the guest.
1: Oh, see, I didn't know that.
0: And that makes editing so smooth because when you're working with a full mix, you know this, it's impossible. Like one track with just the two participants on one full track that's impossible to edit if there's any bleed through or whatever. So, right. I, so zoom is really been, um, a godsend to me and my work.
1: Now, do you have, is there like a pro version of it or something? Yeah. Okay. Cause I don't, I just have cheap free zoom. So I, I re I didn't know that there was, you know, any professional capabilities, but even that it's like 14 bucks a month. That's not bad.
0: No, not too bad. So, I'm gonna ask you. I'm gonna ask you a little bit of a um, technical question as far as programming drums. Okay. For more of the parody type stuff, because you're emulating a style, and one of the songs that I really wanna highlight is in in the early 2000s, I mean, you've always done stuff with drum machines going back to like eat it and other stuff like that, but like when you're doing something like fan fancy with handy, that's some specific like patches and patterns so how do you how do you go about emulating that? Do you have stems? Do you just listen to it a bunch? Like what's your process?
1: Well, uh, uh, listening is is key uh, in, in everything, really. About about uh, playing music and and reproducing and copying sounds and and parts, you have to listen. Uh, in the early days, and I mean like the middle eighties, when I first started using machines, you were you were limited to the sounds that the machine had, and programming back then wasn't. You know, you you knew it was a machine. You weren't you weren't uh, you know you were playing drum parts on a machine. You weren't making up parts or having you know wacky sounds or things like that or you know you didn't nobody created sounds, really. You just used what was in the machine. So it wasn't hard to uh, to go in and, and copy a part back in those days because it's like, well, this sounds like this machine and uh, I can I can get that sound out of the machines I have and that's how I did that 35 years ago. Now, uh, in the 90s in particular, and and especially in the 2000s, uh, producers uh, who, who very often a keyboard player or the producer himself would create those drum sequences. They they created them with all sorts of different sounds. Uh, very often, not even drums. You know, they just they would take different sounds that they liked. They would modify sounds of real drums. They would layer them together and combine two or three sounds to create a completely new sound. And these things weren't in machines. You, you. This was another thing. It was called sound design, and it means creating sounds and, and massaging existing sounds and, and compiling them to make new sounds. So I had to – I didn't know it, but I was learning how to do sound design by listening to these things and going, I don't know what they did, but I know that if I take this sound and add this sound, that it's probably going to sound like that thing on, on the original record. And that's how I learned to to go in. I, I gave up trying to figure out what they did to get those sounds and instead switch to like, I'm, I'm listening to that and I'm hearing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I think if I put those together and maybe EQ it a little bit or, or, or truncate it or slow it down or, do, you know, if I affect these kinds of sounds and put them together, it's going to make that sound. And so the first thing I do when I listen to those records is, uh, to the, to those recordings is I listen to the sounds themselves and I, I create the sounds. I I make the sounds and it, you know, I got really, if I may say so, I got really good at that. You know, I wasn't 20 years ago. I wasn't certainly as good as I was, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and, and, and so on. I mean, I've gotten pretty good at that. And then the next step, once I've got the sounds is I, I go ahead and put together the actual parts. And in a lot of songs, that's not difficult. A lot of songs that are programmed, a lot of hip hop stuff and dance things, it's a four bar uh, section of a drum part and that that's kind of it. Maybe four bars, maybe two. And that's like the whole song and that just repeats and repeats you know throughout the whole song. That's the extent of the drum parts very often. and, and other parts too sometimes. So once you got the sounds together, doing you know, putting them together rhythmically, making a drum part out of them is really not that difficult. But it's it you know sometimes there's a lot of little sneaky parts and I will I will cite the song word crimes. There's a lot of stuff going on. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of little sneaky stuff going on in there. And there's little there's there's a, a clave part, like kind of a kind of a click sort of a hollow click sounding thing. And there's two different ones. There's there's a, a a high one and a low one. I think there's there's like two cowbells or something and they're pitched just a little bit apart. And you know what most people would probably not ever hear it. Uh, you know, most of our fans would never hear, you know, maybe another programmer might hear it, but uh, you know, but I went in and I I made the two separate little cowbell things. There's a little crash, like a breaking glass sound or whatever, the, uh, the snare drum sound on that. And this is one of those occasions where I had to combine like two or three different sounds. I, I think I might've had an actual snare sound as well as a, a uh, rim click or a cross stick you know kind of a kind of a, a knock a, you know kind of a woody kind of a click uh and there might have even been a little bit of a hand clap you know combined with the snare you know that just goes along with the snare part so I've, I've got that you know that was one of those things though where there are probably like a dozen different little little drum and percussion sounds but again that was one of those four bar things once i got those four bar things together. And they were little, each bar was a little bit different, but again, that's just one of those little sneaky things they do to not sound like they just oh, we programmed one bar and just let it run for, you know, three and a half minutes. No, no, they try and create a part. So I have to go in and I have to recreate and, and hear all the little tiny differences in there. And once I got that done, then it's like, Oh, great. I've got my little four bar section. Now I can just repeat it, you know, 30 times. And, and that's it. And sometimes, you know, the, the parts will stop. Uh, You know there'll be a little bit of a break, and that's that's done. I I actually do that. I go ahead and I program that in. I don't leave that to the engineer to to mute those portions. I go ahead and program those. But I do that only after I've put together this four bar thing, and then I go back to the to the arrangement. I go oh in bar sixty four, you know everything hits on one, and then the two, three, and four are are a rest. You know I'll mute everything for that bar, and then it all comes back in on the one of bar sixty five or whatever it is. So. You know, I'll, I'll do that and I, and I will supply uh, stems, although they're actually they're separate tracks. Uh, basically, I email those to the engineer and I don't even have to go in. I don't, you know, on those kind of things, I don't go into the studio. And on our last album, uh, which was Mandatory Fund from 2014, uh, all of the parodies, all the parodies were programmed. Uh, There was nothing live on them other than, you know, I think guitar might have been live, of course, Hal's vocals. Uh, So I don't think I I didn't go into the studio at all for any of those. Uh, I mean, I didn't need to. Uh, I just I sent I sent in the, the parts, you know, and of course, I know the arrangement up front. I know the tempo up front, you know, so it all lines up. I know how much of a count off to put at the beginning of the song. So when the engineer lines up uh, the, the bass player's part and the, you know, the any keyboard parts and all that stuff, and he lines them all up and make sure they match, we all have the same, you know, count off on it. So that all starts in the right place and ends in the right place. I mean, that's important too. But but the the whole sound design thing is, uh, that's one of those things I learned with Al. That's, that's something that most drummers do not do uh, because it's not really what a drummer does. You know, but it's what I do because I happen to be the drummer, copying a bunch of this other stuff, and I didn't want someone else doing it. I didn't want Al to have to call in some other person to do drum parts. You know, you know, even though they're programmed, you know, I wanted to do those, and that was how I felt about it early on. That's why, in the very beginning of 1985, it was I uh, uh, I bought a machine, I bought a drum machine, and because uh, I didn't want someone else to have to do. Those parts, it's like I'm responsible for drum parts, whether I'm playing them or not, I'm responsible. So I got a machine, then I got a different machine, I got an updated machine, then I got into uh, uh, samples, you know, of different drum parts. And I got into sound design when the samples weren't quite, you know, the the, the records we were copying had gone beyond just using drum machine sounds. You know, those producers were, you know, we were always chasing, you know, the cutting edge of production out there and uh, and i learned a lot in the process again something i would not have probably done with almost anyone else uh you know most guys just play drums and if something's programmed uh a keyboard player handles it or the producer handles it you know and it's not a drummer's responsibility in my band it is In al's band it is
0: so now that i ask you this what is your setup like what are you
1: working with i do it very very backward well i went through a lot of phases uh, a lot of stages in uh in my development as a, as a programmer and, and in sound design uh you know and drum machines of course you know that just came from the machine but by i think 90 92 maybe 1992 mm-hmm. i was working with uh a, a sampler on a kai s 900 sampler which was a very not a very capable sampler by today's standards but i mean fine for drum hits and stuff very popular in the studios in fact the the ram in it, the memory was so small that that uh, artists, producers that were using those would line up like eight of them to uh, you know to be able to to work them all to be able to have enough things going at once without having to record one part and then go in and record another. It would take forever to do that, so they would have eight of these playing, you know, like a couple of megs worth of samples, and you know, so they could do stuff more expedient. Uh, at that time, then I started. Uh, started working on samples a little bit. I mean, I had a computer at that time. You know, I was already well versed in in audio, a bit, but I was using MIDI uh, from the drum machine. I would basically sequence the drum machine and let it play the samples. Uh, I got another sampler that had an internal MIDI uh, engine, and I was able to make a MIDI file. And I used to do that in Pro Tools, of all things. And Pro Tools is really not known as a MIDI program, but I. I I enjoyed it. I liked it and, and laid out all the MIDI notes, you know, like you see them in a studio, even though we were still recording on tape in those days. But I mean, it laid it out in a linear fashion. And that, and I used that for a while and, uh, you know, would load the MIDI file then into the, it was a Kurzweil sampler I got after the Akai. It would load into the Akai and then it would trigger its own sounds inside or sounds that I put in, you know, my samples. And so that was, that was very self-contained. Uh, but as far as doing stuff for the studio, I soon began to um, I began to just lay out stuff. And this is maybe taking a step backwards. I started using, uh, and it was a a SoundForge product at the time, and then became Sony. Uh, it's called Acid uh, for Windows, oh, yeah. It's it very much like Garage Band for for a Mac. Uh, it's just it's like a multi track program, but very very simple. Uh, really just simple and very easy. And again, you know, I'm not trying to produce records or do anything amazing. I'm just putting together drum parts. So it was perfect for me. And I literally, I lay everything out and it, it lays out just like it's going to look in Pro Tools in the studio. And I create, I just drop the samples in where they go, you know, line them up. And, and I so I, I do these things. You know, I create the, the samples, the wave files. I put them in ACID. Uh, I generate from ACID for each track. I generate... Um, file for the song of that sound so there'll be a snare file a kick drum file a hi-hat file etc and and i generate you know all of those i don't try to mix it because you never really know until you get all of the sounds of a a song you know what the drum mix is going to be sometimes one thing has to be changed and you know if i if i give them an existing mix no matter how good i think it is it's not going to be right for the song so they have to mix everything separately and uh and, and you put them in an email and you send them off to the engineer. Or you send them off to Al, and he puts them all on a on a drive and brings them into the studio, and and they have it ready to go. And the other guys do this as well. You know, it's not like we have to bring them in like in the old days. I had to bring my my sampler in and hook up the drum machine to the sampler so it would you know play it basically. And uh, you know that's how we did it. We we played it onto tape. It wasn't even a question of you couldn't even transfer it into Pro Tools. We didn't have Pro Tools yet. So what was the what was
0: the first song that used Pro Tools, do you remember?
1: For us? Yeah. Uh, might have been the 2006 album. Might have been uh, Straight out of Linwood. Maybe. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Because I know we did that in a studio that we had used tape in before. We also did a thing where we would record the basic tracks to uh, tape and then transfer that to Pro Tools. Because you got a certain kind of a sound on tape. You got a certain I guess, a warmth, a little bit, a certain, there was just a certain vibe you got from recording to tape. Now, the plugins for Pro Tools, these little apps, basically, that that uh, allow you to massage sounds, they've gotten pretty good at reproducing the tape vibe. You know, you don't, you don't absolutely need to record the tape anymore to make it sound like you're on tape. Uh, you know, there's just a certain, there was a certain feel that it had. Uh, but this studio, we went from recording on tape and then they would transfer that before Al was doing his vocals, you know, they would transfer that then to Pro Tools because it's a lot easier to work to, to then recording straight to Pro Tools. So I, I think, I think that may have started in 2006, which was probably a little late because they had Pro Tools. Well, they had Pro Tools in the, in the nineties for sure. Uh, we just, we were a little slow to catch up.
0: I remember. Now that you say that, I remember there was this behind-the-scenes thing on the Straight Outta Linwood DVD that came on the dual disc of the
1: album. Oh, right, right, right. That's right. Yes, and we were using Pro Tools then. That may have been. We may have. That may have been the the time that we went from tape to Pro Tools, or we may have already been one hundred percent Pro Tools. But yes. And the only reason why I remember that because
0: there was this big ordeal about Pro Tools crashing.
1: Oh, in right, the, right.
0: And I'm like, yeah, I mean, now it's industry standard. So, yeah. Yeah. so you could essentially do all the work you need to do at home <laughs> if you really wanted to.
1: Well, I can do all of the programming at home, sure. I mean, I don't need to be in the studio to do that because I always did it at home anyway. I mean, I didn't go into the studio and work. By the time I showed up at the studio, my work was done. And I either had to bring in the sampler you know, they had all the sounds inside of it. And then we would play that, basically play that onto tape. You know, to now, I could take those samples, make files, and they go straight into Pro Tools. I mean, I make Pro Tools compatible files, you know, they're WAV files. And, and yes, I absolutely, well, like I say on that last album, for a couple of albums, I, I do all that stuff at home and then just send it, send it in an email. Yeah. T-
0: file transfers are your friend.
1: Uh-huh. you know, yeah, you know Dropbox or whatever, or there's wetransfer or you know if the file I mean email is a little you know so these, some of these files are a little bit big for email, I guess, but yeah these these transfer services uh, you know it's it's very simple and it's fast and it's reliable and it's free, you know for the most part. So as we wrap up, why has
0: working with Al and the guys taught you about yourself and how you
1: work? Oh boy. That's pretty philosophical. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's a lot more than just a gig. It's a lot more than just a job, you know, and it has to be for me to have stuck with it for all of us to have stuck with each other for, you know, this band has been together for over 40 years now. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I guess I, I learned that I, I I'm not too old to learn. You know, I, I, again, with this whole sound design and, and the sequencing stuff, I mean, I've become a lot more than just a drummer, you know, just someone that sits behind drums. And that's the extent of my talent. I mean, I was able to learn things that, you know, well, 30, 40 years ago, I didn't really even envision you know, me doing. I mean, certainly not when I decided I wanted to be a drummer as a kid, you know, I thought, and and then I'm going to get into electronics and do electronic sounds and make up sounds and all of this. You know, I won't even have to touch drums to to make drum parts. That never even occurred to me. So, I mean, I've learned and and grown, uh, you know, as a result of that. I mean, that's, that's something that's been very cool. And I don't know that that would have happened with, uh, you know, almost anyone else that I've worked with. Well, it hasn't. I've been with a whole bunch of bands and I've, there's one other guy I've been playing with uh, uh, almost as long as Al. I've been playing with him since 81. And I don't believe I've done any programming or any of that stuff with him. I've recorded several albums with him and done a lot of gigs. I just played with him the other night. And uh, now his his type of music doesn't involve that kind of stuff. But that's what I'm saying. Not every band presents those opportunities to to uh, you know do those things, to to learn and to grow. And some guys don't learn and grow. Some guys say, you know what, you're going to need to get, you know, a, a keyboard guy or some programmer to do that. I'm a drummer. I don't do that stuff. Well, I didn't think that way. You know, I learned and I grew and I'm glad that I was able to do that. You know, that's that's something that Al has brought to me personally that, that, uh, and I can't say it's come in particularly handy with anyone else, but it's come in handy with Al because I learned to do it and I can keep doing it. And there's probably more to learn. Uh, you know, we'll see. I don't know that, you know, but, but when something presents itself, I will do my best to rise to the occasion. I will do my best to make sure he doesn't have to call in someone else to do something I'm supposed to be doing.
0: And that's, that's exactly my motto. It's
1: like, just adapt. Like, Exa- yeah. That's, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's taught me how to adapt.
0: So where can people find you and all this stuff that you're doing?
1: Well, there's uh you know, my website, com has got uh uh, some information on the books. It's got uh, uh, some information on my career. Uh, it's, of course, got links to the other bands I work with. You know, Al. There's uh, some local bands I work with. Uh, basically, everything, you know, my history as a player, uh, it's all there at BermudaSchwartz.com. And, uh, you know, there's an email link if someone wants to say hi or has a question or, or something like that. You know, and I've, uh, I, I've again, I've been online a long time, so I'm just very used to to uh, communicating with with uh, other drummers to communicating with Al's fans. Uh, Strangers will email me. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, You know, a lot of guys, a lot of artists, you know, have this, you know, they're very secretive and, and not reachable online. And, you know, it's not that they're, they're selfish or, or that they don't appreciate their fans. It's just really a case of, you know, like if Al gave out his email address, he would get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails, you know, every day i mean there's just no way he can he can do it it's just not any way to do it uh and not that people are going to send me hundreds and hundreds of emails a day and i've learned that you know everyone knows how to reach me and i'm lucky if i get one email a day so you know it's uh uh you know my website has got pretty much everything everything they need to know and and if there's something they they want to know more they have you know feel free to email me so when i
0: have these conversations i don't intend to make an impact on the person on the other end. But I'm just curious, is there anything that you've taken away from our time together today? It's been a while since we've caught up.
1: Uh, Yeah, I, well, one, I'm glad you're still doing this. I don't sense any, any limitations, uh, you know, because of, of your uh, cerebral palsy. I, I, uh, you know this. This has been a great interview. I think. I hope I said some things that sound good. Uh I, get, I guess the listeners will decide that if I did a good job or not. But you certainly you held up your end of the bargain. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much.
0: And I, like I said, I don't. I don't intend to be an inspiration or to inspire the person on the other end. But if I could change somebody's perspective for at least one second and i've done my job
1: well i think i think you can change your perspective for more than an hour here with us and and uh should inspire there's no i mean i you know hopefully people are inspired by the things i say you know i'm I'm not just here rattling off and bragging about what i've done i mean hopefully you know someone will hear this and go wow i'm a drummer but i didn't know i could go in and you know how we you know if if i just put my mind to it, go in and work on sounds and parts, you know, and, and I can sequence things, you know, it's, it is possible to, you know, that's, it's rare, but you know, you can hook up with an artist and have a lifelong career. You know, I mean now again, Al has been, you know, not every artist's last 40 plus years, but it's possible. And it is possible to, if everyone does a good job uh, to stay with that artist, you know, for, you know, if, if you make a commitment like that, and you're willing to learn and grow, it can turn into something, and uh, that you didn't expect. None of us knew this was going to go this long. Uh, you know, certainly not not Al. I mean, it's you know, but, he, but he, what he does is you know he he does it well, and the audience is still there. And you know, he tries to do material that's current that appeals to you know a, a mainstream audience, not just you know our audience is not just grown up with us. You know, there's a lot of kids out there. There's a lot of kids that are under 20 that are you know under 10, even that are discovering us. And, you know, we'd already been in business for a long time, you know, and here they come along and and they love us, you know, so that's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thing.
0: Well, I gotta be honest from when I was 12 years old to calling in to a radio show and being so nervous that I accidentally hung up on Weird Al when he said my name (laughs) to, to doing this. <laughs> it's a full circle moment, and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, you're so welcome. Thank you very much, Rob. Bob, sorry, I almost called you Rob. I get it. Your last name starts with an R. I I, I got dyslexic there.
0: Nice. <laughs> <laughs>